Hello and welcome to Enelab Talks. Architecture is inspirational and so are the people behind it. We want to talk design culture, new projects and unique stories that have made it all possible. Today we are in Ricardo Bofilteller, the architectural headquarters in Barcelona at the repurposed cement factory La Fabrica. And my guest is Ricardo Emilio Bofil. He joined the office in 1991 after graduating from Harvard University and he is currently president of the practice. Enjoy our talk. And many thanks for meeting me today. I always start interviews actually asking about the childhoods mm-hmm. the, related with your architectural background. So I know that you have been watching your father become one of the most active and uh, celebrated architects. So what do you remember about these days? Yes, well, we're three generations of architects. Actually, my grandfather, Emilio Bofil, or Emilio Bofil in Catalan, in 1932 started already a Bofil architects firm and they actually did a hundred buildings in Barcelona which uh, are not well known but they are part of the city in the sense that they are like the best work of a local architect uh, so he was a doctor in architecture and my father also was taking me everywhere from his travelings to his uh, buildings to his constructions to his uh, studio So what I remember from very early on is to be fighting with the architects that I later worked with, that some of them retired already, like Peter Hodgkinson, Manolo Nunez, these sort of um, masters of architecture that worked with Ricardo, fighting with them with like the tubes that were before where we used to put the drawings. We would fight as if they were like uh, swords, uh, like like Star Wars, kind of pre-Star Wars, kind of a low-tech kind of fighting and uh, just running around the office. And then about the house that you're asking, which is La Fabrica, of course, a factory, I very much remember the day where we started the dynamite, the explosions to blow up like 30% of the factory because it was reinforced concrete and it had to be blown. Uh, so that's a, my, one of my first memories of how through destruction you can do creation, right? So it was about carving out the spaces and finding what was inside and this labyrinth of the fabrica, transforming it into from industrial to something which uh, we like to think is some sort of smart garden or some smart office, an oasis, a place that actually has changed the entire neighborhood here in San Just, there's Verne in Barcelona. So it's been an incredible trip for me uh, working and uh, living with this great, fantastic person that is uh, my father, Ricardo. But I also remember Emilio, who not only taught me how to swim, but also taught me the basics of the ethics of life. So I want to ask about to what extent this building that we are in influenced you? Very much, very much. Not only this building, but also Muralla Roja, which is the most Instagrammed building in Spain, I think. Uh, Muralla Roja in Calpe, very kind of well-known through Instagram now. But uh, those buildings and these buildings always gave me a very narrative, a narrative sense of architecture. Always, for a kid living there, it was like... Almost you wanted to make a movie there. You always wanted to transform the spaces even more because the spaces are transformative and narrative and they provoke in the mind of the kid that wanting to become some sort of film director or image director or be part of this whole aesthetic sort of uh, built world. So it definitely uh, had a strong influence. Uh, remember that we had a little apartment always in most of these projects, at least renting them out. So in Moriah we had an apartment in Shanadu. 
We had one also in this place called Kaf Kafka's Castle. So all these buildings not only were incredible in terms of how regional, uh, but at the same time international they were, but also because they had these names, Kafka's Castles, Walden 7 with, with the streets full of names. One of them is called Einstein, the other one is called Picasso, <laughs> the other one is called Lorca. All the, so all these names and things make you immediately think of narrative architecture, which was there but was only called narrative architecture a little bit later, after, let's call postmodernism. There's an, of course, we started with deconstructivism. People like Charles Renfro, who I went to school with, and great architects started with that sort of deconstructive movement. And we went through the narrative. We went to trying to explain stories through the materiality and the spaces of the buildings. So uh, you have, like, have studied architecture, real estate, and urbanism about it and mm. universities like Rice, Colombia, Harvard. So what what, uh, what was your motivation to come here to Spain and to work here? Well, I always wanted to do architecture to work with my father. I never really uh, thought of doing architecture to work with any other architect because I was more in love with him than and the architecture than, than anything else and it was more to continue this generational thing and to do the third generation and while my brother Pablo is, a, is an architect by blood but uh, economist by education uh, we thought that if he was studying um, let's call the real estate and the management and the numbers and the finance and the organization and also he had the, in his blood um, a lot of art and architecture if I went into also architecture and real estate um, well we could combine together and try to you know do this uh, third generation uh, together but in terms of studying in Harvard and Rice and Columbia, uh, I stayed in America till about 2000. Uh, and then I came back because after teaching in the University of Miami architecture school for a few years and then um, studying film in LA, which I thought was necessary because it, 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 we need to explain the stories of architecture through film. And today with CGI and animations and even VR that we were today doing VR for an airport, project um all that needs a story and it needs a strong narrative more than in, in more than ever before this is important but after being a long time in america and, and loving america I, I came back and uh and started uh, working with him because he was already uh you know he was already uh 60 so it was that right time to 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 jump on the board although every summer i have to say uh since 1983 I was working either as a model maker or a draftman, or I was working in the, in the firm. I had some stints of two or three years, so, so it was never a complete detachment from the office, but yes, I was trying to experiment the American constellation of, of business and, and working there for a while also. And also, you, as you said, you graduated from like the film studies as well, mm. so and you had some films. And I'm really wondering, like, as you said, it's a kind of a storytelling and mm. a kind of new medium to tell you about architecture and maybe your new ideas to it. Uh, so. Can you just tell about your films? I thought if you want to be a filmmaker, Ricardo, you better start going to the right place. And Los Angeles, of course, is the place for the makeup film, the place where they produce films, low budget, high budget, medium budget, industrial films. So I went to UCLA for a year. I did a master's there. And, um, and really, that was a very interesting experience. I did a, a short movie called Nietzsche 
about the famous philosopher, but uh, taken to the modern uh, LA world of a taxi driver and a girl. It's all about Superman and uh, the superheroes also again there. And then I made a movie in Spain that was uh, paid by a uh, developer here, I guess a film developer, a promoter, producer paid for for this movie that we did called Hot Milk. It was a comedy and it was a total fiasco. Uh, so um, it was kind of like a coitus interruptus, my film career abruptly uh, finished. Before that, I had written three novels, uh, Persephone, uh, Under My Skin, and um, I Don't Swallow, that was the third one. <laughs> and those were published also in Spain and in Mexico. So yes, film, I think, is absolutely necessary to, to bring it into, into the digital world that we're living in. And also I got to meet people that later became even more famous there than they're now, the, the, the Mexican film directors that won all those Oscars, you know, Cuaron and people like that who, who were doing incredible already movies at the time, like, for example, movies without cutting the, the film, like continuous shots, like now we see in 1917 by Mendes. You know, so I learned a lot and I, uh, I, I'm very happy with my, my LA stay. I think it's recommendable for anybody who wants to be an architect or a filmmaker to spend some time in Los Angeles. Let's make uh, this, also these ideas to here because like you are here and doing architectural projects and it's the kind of work culture here, I believe, is about storytelling, the presentations. So uh, I want to like, uh, what does your day consist of here and what is the work culture like? I, I, I mean, there are international architects working here. Yes, we have 20 nationalities, but this is something that Carla started. Like my grandfather was a local architect, so we mostly work with Catalan and Spanish people, maybe some Italians, for example. But now we have 20 nationalities spanning from China to India to to the different uh, countries of the world. Uh, so we can work with architects that are motivated to work here in La Fabrica, which is like a monastery. In a way, it's a place with almost no windows or very small windows, so wide walls. And we don't pray because we're atheists. We do architecture, which is our religion. Um, so, yes, it's a life of concentration. And I, sometimes I call it like a military discipline because it doesn't really let you much time for family life or uh, personal life. So it's everything about preparation uh, to operate on countries which are very complicated, like Russia, China, India. Even Africa, it's a continent, it's not a country, but Morocco, Cote d'Ivoire. So, yeah, we're always preparing ourselves for the next project, and that's our life here. Um, it's a fun life, because Ricardo, sometimes I think, what came before, the architects or architecture, right? What is What came first? And uh, looking at my father, I think it was architects, uh, because... Uh, he, in a way, is the perfect architect, uh, completely dedicated to architecture, loves architecture, but then built the Fabrica, which is like the church of architecture. It's the place from where we can create urban design and architecture, interior design, product design, and storytelling. And he provided the context, the architecture, the let's call it the envelope for all of us to uh, work here, and uh, we're very grateful for that. And I believe that it's not only like a practice, this practice played the Barcelona's like urban evolution, but it, it changed the evolution of the Barcelona. Barcelona changed a lot. Yeah, and also you changed the view of the maybe the people looking through the architecture office. 
through the architect's life and it's, it's a kind of combination not doing only buildings but also it's a, as you said it's a kind of a cultural factory mm. so they see and understand in Mm-hmm. So yes. uh, maybe I would like to ask about uh, how this practice played a part in Barcelona's urban architecture mm, development. Very good question. Well, Barcelona is a city which was grey. It was um, secondary. Nothing happened until we had a great mayor, Maragai, and um, the luck that we got the Olympics. The Olympics in 1992 mm. were the event, a global event, that transformed the city. Now, the main idea was to transform this gray city looking at towards the mountains uh, with almost no airport, with um, a master plan which had been done in 1856 by Ildefonso Cerda that had been forgotten by Franco's, um, uh, let's call them mayors, and the, the very dark period that Spain went through with a military regime that had basically, uh, you know, taken over the democracy. Now, we opened towards the water and then we redid the whole uh, front of the water. The whole seaside was redone. This is uh, somewhere around six kilometers of beach, new sand, and also a new waterfront where we also had a lot of industry there. We had the railway tracks. We had a very industrial degraded areas with slums on the water. And all that was changed with the Olympics. Uh, We worked with Oriol Boigas and the biggest architects in the city, all of us together. My father was one of them and uh, participated in the Olympics in a very important way, not only with the buildings in the Villa Olimpica, but also with INEF, which is the University of Sports, which is in the actual Olympic ring. But then in 2004, we had another event which the mayor had uh, invented in a way, which was the Forum of Cultures, and that we invited Herzog, we invited the best architects from the from the world, because we always invited architects, Richard Meyer, Foster, all of them are here. We wanted to have the best architects, not just us, but invite our friends from all over the world. You know, now we would invite Bijarke Ingalls, we would invite Renfro, we would invite some of these great architects that are our friends. In a very collegial way, we work with them, and also we have a good um, relationship. But cities are made by many, many architects, but the urban ideas are made by a few, because uh, turning a city around like Barcelona from gray to blue, you know, from mountain to water, it was becoming a very international city and a very, you know, with lots of like electronic music, the relationship with Ibiza, the relationship with Madrid. So it's, it's, it's a great city to live in as an urban laboratory. From like taking this from Barcelona, you are producing a lot of projects in the worldwide. Mm. So I want to ask about this because like you always said uh, uh, to reduce the carbon footprint of the cities. You are talking in like Great Moscow. I saw in the kind of presentations within Dallas connected cities as well. So what is your motivation behind the, these projects, these kind of projects that answering the global problems of the world? Well, the global problems of today, in my mind, from my point of view, uh, when I was start, started to be aware of the global warming is 30 years ago by reading James Lovelock, who's an engineer and a scientist, uh, now he's 100 years old. He's uh, one of my heroes because he started talking about Gaia, the Earth being a superorganism that is alive and nobody believed him and because he gave it this name Gaia. 
because uh, Golding, his his friend, the Nobel Prize writer who wrote The Lord of the Flies, like he, he, he gave him the word Gaia, which is a Gaia, Geo is Earth, right? So it was to give a storyline to his theories, but actually he's a scientist uh, and he worked with Lynn Margulis uh, to discover that the Earth is actually alive and that uh, it's a series of ecosystems forming a super ecosystem, a super organism. So then we started to think that cities themselves could be superorganisms and actually they take food every day from the outside, right? Mm -hmm. And they uh, shit or they uh, put trash or they put waste every day. So it's a primitive superorganism. And then by 2012, when we started Great Moscow, which was the replanning of Moscow, um, we were part of that and that was the biggest project in the history of mankind. That's how um, the Kremlin and how the government of Moscow, the city of Moscow, explained this. We were going to move the Kremlin outside of the city, create a, a monocentric city, transform it into a polycentric city by moving uh, the center of the city to the outside. So I worked with OMA there as a colleague and as a competition, uh, in a competition. Uh, we worked together to do this, this uh, decentralization of the city. And then the word smart came in. And then what is a smart city? Is it a technological change or is it an ecological change? And then we discovered that by combining artificial intelligence, machine learning and other technological tools with an understanding of biotech and infotech, especially biotech, we could reboot the earth. And the idea is that if we plant half a trillion trees in about 12% of the land surface, we can absorb about 50 uh, trillion tons of carbon dioxide, which is what we're pouring into the into the atmosphere every year. So, if the cities, instead of being um, carbon neutral, they could be oxygen producers through technology and through planting, uh, we could actually uh, help in this catastrophic situation, which is the global warming of the planet. So, yes, we're very interested in making architecture ecological, making cities like forests net producers of oxygen and yes we're interested interested in mobility in all these new words that came up in the last eight years mm -hmm. which we think can be developed over the next hundred years because these things don't happen very fast but we are looking at artificial trees artificial leaves and also all these uh, ideas of making cities um, good for human beings and for mother earth so it sounds a little bit of a of a line that everybody's talking about now with Greta and stuff, but we started 30 years ago with uh, James Lovelock, the great genius of um, of this of this science. Oh, Greta said the architect role is kind of changing with the technology, with the understanding the much more the nature itself. So, how do you perceive now um, the contemporary architect's role? Maybe what's your definition of an architect? Right yes, yeah, well, a hundred years ago, in 1920, the Bauhaus uh, said that, you know, we have to be inspired in machines, right? So all buildings look like machines. Not only airports look like planes, but, you know, buildings look like slabs or radiators. And that was a hundred years of catastrophe. Then we had this form follows function or function follows form. All that is just sort of um, sort of mental diarrhea right now in the sense that Nobody cares about really shape uh, in the sense of if it's a building which is ecologically wrong and that pollutes, it doesn't matter the shape or the form or even the function. So there's a bigger par paradigm now. There's a change of paradigm, I would say. And buildings, yes, they have to be striking, cutting edge, whatever, twisting, not twisting, classical, modern, floating, upside down, pyramids, whatever they are. But 
ecological first ecology first if it, if i was trump i would say ecology first not america first ecology first so that is what is guiding our ideas now from the little details to the big uh, sort of urban planning oh, it's fascinating so now in this studio what projects you are now working well we have been working with the chinese government to do the new smart cities for china which are very specific for the chinese in the sense that well they have their own 5g they have their own autonomous cars they have their own internet they have their own cutting edge finance and um, and they're very advanced with artificial intelligence so we've learned a lot by working directly with the new cities and the new pilot cities of something that the Chinese um, government, and I would say Mr. Xi himself, the chairman of the Communist Party, has declared or explained that he wants to live in the era, era of the ecological civilization. And that is the first phrase that you get when you get the brief from the Chinese uh, government. So we've worked there for uh, a long time. And the last two years have been very, very intense. Um, also, we've worked, of course, in Spain, in Barcelona itself, which is a smart city. But it's more of a social smart city, where what we want here is that everybody has the same rights, the same human rights, the same social rights. So it's a lot about a social smart city. Of course, ecology is important. Of course, mobility, traffic is important. But here, we've explored more the sort of integrating everybody, all the citizens into into the job of making the city smart. So we've had a lot of experiences. Now we're working in the Middle East also with some incredibly interesting smart cities in the middle of the desert that has a different kind of um, principles, right? So water, for example, in a city in the desert, circular water, smart management of water, or even desinalization, desinalization, I'm a little bit dyslexic today, of the water is very, very important. It's not the most ecological thing because it consumes a lot of carbon. So how to do clean energy, how to do cities that are clean and that are intelligent, all that is a new words, a new ideas that we're exploring here in the office. And we are lucky that Ricardo, who's been in urban design for 50 years, and even the Walden, which is a building, they call it a vertical city. We've done cities in the desert. We've done cities in many places, even chunks of Barcelona, chunks of Paris, chunks of different cities. So urban design, but before it was like a mineral urban design. It was a dead urban design. Now it's a biological urban design. So we need to introduce life, not only for the plants, but for the human scale of the people living there. Recently, I read a book like in space, time, and architecture. So yeah. it says that Finland is with our also the same way that Spain is with Picasso or Ireland with James Joyce. So how strongly are you doing your work from a kind of Spanish perspective? That's a great question. When I'm in India, they always say I want the Spanish touch. <laughs> and, I, and I'm thinking, did they see El Zorro, you know, the, the movie, and they want the Mexican touch? Do they want the California Beverly Hills touch? Because Spanish uh, architecture traveled, of course, in uh, the 15th century uh, to America with Hernán Cortés and the whole um, conquest of Mexico was very much also, and the Caribbean was very much bringing in that architecture and also the city planning. And you can see that it comes from the Roman times. It has the Cardos and the Decumanos, the Agora in the center, which we call the plaza, mm -hmm. which changed the, the temple of Augustus that we have in Barcelona by that local church, because at that point we had more Catholic influence. Uh, and, and, and what I'm trying to say is that Spanish is important, but it's also 
in its relationship with the Mediterranean. It's not so much because Spain doesn't really have any good architecture except what was done in Al-Andalus, Andalusia, which was done with uh, Muslim uh, influence. Uh, Alhambra is... Uh, the Spanish architecture is really not that rich in terms of um, history. What is important is the architecture of Barcelona and the Roman architecture in Spain and of course the influence we had from Italy and from Greece. So when I say Spanish architecture, yes, but to be more specific, it should be called Mediterranean architecture. You already done a lot of things in your life, but what is your ultimate goal when uh, it comes to your work or your uh, life as a person? So what do you want to remember it for? Well, at the macro scale, I would like to participate uh, in the global uh, cooling, global cooling. So how can we cool down the earth after all the... Um, catastrophes that we have done by cutting, you know, not only the trees but polluting. Uh, ever since James Watt invented the 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 machine, the engine of uh, for the trains, you know, the first uh, mm -hmm. engines. That's when we started burning carbon, and uh, so it's been 150 or 200 years. Sorry. So um, I would like to be remembered at the macro scale for participating through urban design and uh, and the ecological planning in a beginning of a, of, a, of a mitigation of the warming. I think um, I spoke about this program of planting half a trillion trees and um, I'm working on that also. I think that's important. Uh, and at the micro scale, what I want to be remembered is, I guess, by my friends and my family as somebody who was um, always there when they needed me and uh, part of a family, part of a generation, part of a, uh, part of a studio. One more. Uh, one more guy that was trying his best uh, to do his job. So regarding the future, what are you optimistic about? There's a lot of uh, reasons to be pessimistic, right? With uh, global warming, the, the different uh, health crises that we have now, overpopulation of the earth because we're 9 billion almost, uh, or we will be, and uh, you know, uh, if we were 1 billion, it would be fine, it would be sustainable, right? So there's a lot of reasons for being pessimistic and I want to be, no, I want to be, I am very optimistic and how to be optimistic is, for example, every morning I swim in the water, in the sea. That gives you a good, you know, start of the day uh, by contact with nature, contact with the water, even in the winter with a wetsuit, it doesn't matter, you should have no excuses. Then you can do some bicycling and some running, you know, that, those kinds of things keep you upbeat give your endorphins and your, you know, everything working inside, just in case the context becomes very dark and very bleak. So that's my kind of formula. And what am I optimistic about? I mean, generally optimistic to see that the earth is alive still, and that you look outside even billions of years of light years away or millions of, and it's all dead. So we're surrounded by death, darkness and, and destruction. I'm optimistic that the Earth survived already four and a half billion years and that uh, it could survive another four billion before the sun explodes. So I'm optimistic. We have time. And uh, I work a lot in India and I love the Indian culture because the, the time is circular in India. It's not linear like in Europe. It's circular. So uh, things come back. You know, it's always this circle and I love it. You know how... It's not only about karma of being reborn and hoping you're reborn. I don't believe in that, but I do believe that we have multiple opportunities to solve a problem. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it myself. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. And don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify. See you next time.